it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. On today's episode, I unfortunately have to talk about one of my least favorite people, Donald Trump. Now, Trump announced last week that he was running for president for a third time. And the only word of the week that I could conjure is exhausting. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Because the bigoted, twice impeached, insurrectionist leading, tax evading, election denying, democracy destroying, white supremacy loving, sexually assaulting, Putin loving, former president has decided to torment the American public by running for president again. Now, Donald Trump is a boil on the ass of humanity. And while I wish with every fiber in my being, I could turn off channel Trump But because of his announcement, I know the next two years are about to be an absolute hellscape. Trump is addicted to attention the same way black women are addicted to making a swirl design out of our baby hairs. What this means is that going forward, we're going to have to be that much more vigilant about staying on task. This isn't a time to feel lazy or fatigued, even as Trump is stomping on every one of our nerves. One thing that may be much different is that the media is far more hostile to him now than they were before when he ran the first time. When NPR tweeted about Trump running for presidency again, here was the exact way they framed it. Breaking Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow the results of the 2020 presidential election and inspired a deadly riot at the Capitol in a desperate attempt to keep himself in power, has filed to run for president again in 2024. Keep that same energy media. We're going to need the press to frame his presence in the presidential race just like that all the time. Even with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis emerging as a very viable option for Republicans, it boils down to this. Fuck Donald Trump. Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah. I like white folks, but I don't like you. We're tasked with making sure this motherfucker never touches the presidency again. But that whole process is going to be exhausting the word of the week just give me a second to speak it's the word of the week and now on to today's show i am just so hyped for today's guest because he's one of the greatest actors of this generation he's been in the industry since he was 10 and that is not an exaggeration his breakout movie was apocalypse now and then after that it was on Boys in the Hood, Deep Cover, What's Love Got to Do With It, The Matrix, John Wick. And that's just a tiny fraction of his very impressive resume. He is currently executive producing a powerful ESPN documentary that we will discuss in a moment. But coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Lawrence Fishburne. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, uh, Lawrence, I don't know if you know this, but I am of the opinion you might be the black version of the Kevin Bacon game. Have you ever heard of the Kevin Bacon game? I know the Kevin Bacon game. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Six degrees. I think you are the black version of this game. There is a six degrees of Lawrence Fishburne game. Are we establishing that right now? Yeah. Have you seen your resume? (laughs) And how long it is? 
Yes, it, it's pretty lengthy. Although you came to television in the 70s, like you've been in projects with Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Two films with Kevin, yes. Exactly. You're the black version of the Kevin Bacon game. I can do that. And I know people listening are like, what's the Kevin Bacon game? Me and my friends used to play this in college all the time. You could link any actor back to Kevin Bacon. And so I think Lawrence Fishburne is the actor that you can link any actor back to as well, the black version. So really? I do. I think. Should we play around or what? From Apocalypse Now. I mean, Apocalypse Now is going to wipe out so many people. You know, that was your first sort of big, big break. That's going to lock out a, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Boys in the Hood is going to knock out a lot of people. I mean, like, it's so many films. Rumblefish. I mean, King of New York. They're going to all knock out a lot of people. So that's why I'm like, I'm pretty confident in this. I like it. Before we get into the teeth of the interview, I'm going to ask you a question. I ask every person who appears on this podcast, since it is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered, I'm going to ask you, Lawrence Fishburne, when did you become unbothered? I've always been unbothered. I would say probably since I was about the age of seven, I've had a pretty clear sense of myself. And because I've had a pretty clear sense of myself, I've always been unbothered by what other people think of. That's a lot to know at seven years old. I think I was very blessed and very fortunate to know that at that age. One of the things that's so fascinating about your career is that you did know so young that this is what you wanted to do. I know you had some urging and some gentle nudging from your mother. But when is the first time where you felt like, I can do this for a living? Like, this is my life's work. I knew it when I got the first job when I got the first play that I did in New York in 1971, a play that was called In My Many Names and Days. It was written by a man named Charles Fuller, who went on to write something called A Soldier's Story, A Soldier's Play. Uh, After I got that first job, I knew that this was what I was going to do. So the two very fascinating facts I think about you starting off there, that was your professional theatrical debut, correct? At 10. Yes. The fact that the play was directed by Vin Diesel's dad. That's correct. And that you did the part in blackface. What is the story behind this? So the story is that the play was performed in two separate parts. So they would perform the the play, the first part, one weekend, Thursday through Sunday. And then the second part of the play, the following Thursday through Sunday. The character's name was Ruben, and a 10-year-old was required to play him as a 10-year-old. And then he's 20 years old in the second part of the play. Irving Vincent, Vin Diesel's dad, had cast another actor to play the 20-year-old. He's a beautiful young man, perfect black skin, incredible physique, just gorgeous. We had similar bone structure, but our colors were very different. My mother, when Mr. Vincent said, I'd love to cast your boy. He's really a wonderful young actor, but, you know, he doesn't look anything like the other actor. My mother said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of you. So she blacked me up. Oh my God. And I made my professional theatrical debut in blackface, no word of a lie. In the tradition of the great Burt Williams, many people will not know who that is, but Burt Williams was a, a great vaudevillian. He predates Al Jolson, and he was actually uh, a native of the Bahamas, and he was a very light-skinned black man, but he had to perform in blackface back then because people just couldn't get past looking at him naturally. I know people, they look at your career and I think it's very noticeable the fact that you clearly were very intentional about doing different types of roles so that nobody could say, oh, he's the romantic comedy guy or he's the this guy that you, you made sure you were always presenting the audience with something different. But is there a role that you didn't get that you still think about? I just turned 61 years old. And once upon a time, there might have been some roles that I felt that way about. But as I've grown older and I've matured and I've, you know, I've had a great career, I've done a lot of wonderful things and I still have some wonderful things ahead of me, I'm sure. So I don't really sort of covet roles like that. I don't really sort of have that kind of feeling about things. There are, there are some roles that I would have liked to have played that other people have played. And I've been very happy with those performances. Like, for example, I always wanted to play Jimi Hendrix when I was younger. I didn't get a chance to do that. I thought Andre 3000's performance as Jimi Hendrix was brilliant. I wanted to play, for example, Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen. I thought Billy Crudup, who's a friend of mine, was great. I thought 
Yaya. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, Yaya. He was brilliant in the series as well. And I thought he was wonderful as Morpheus, you know, in this last Matrix. I'm very, very blessed and I'm very fortunate. So I just try to remain open for whatever it is that, you know, the universe is going to bring to me. Okay, well, by that same token, and this is related to one of your major franchises that you starred in. So Will Smith mm-hmm. told a story about mm-hmm. how he was offered the Matrix and he turned it down he it. because he didn't understand it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he turned it down and he chose to do Wild Wild West instead. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we could say that was it, it maybe not a mistake, but I think he'd like to have that one back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> OK. okay? <laughs> so while you may not covet any roles, mm-hmm. is there a decision you made to turn down a role and you later thought maybe that wasn't? No. Never happened. No, I turned down Pulp Fiction. I do not regret that decision at all. You know why? Because it turned out to be the star-making role of Sam Jackson's career. That's the role that made Sam Jackson a star. And I contributed to that. I stayed out of the way. I hope you remind him of that. <laughs> no, no, I don't need to remind him of that. I mean, you know, it's kind of, we've never talked about it, but it's just, you know, I don't regret any of those things. By the way, that's a very mature, grounded perspective. Instead of looking at it or what you lost out, you looked at it as what the person gained because you decided it wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. So why did you turn it down? There were things about the script that just I didn't like. There are things about the script that are fun, but there are things about the script that I just didn't, didn't like. So, On the other hand, what's love got to do with it, you turned down several times before you actually- Turned that down five times, yes. Five times. So what was wrong with it when they kept coming to you? What didn't you like? The writing was really strong with respect to Tina's character, and it wasn't strong enough with respect to Ike's character. But, you know, once I recognized that Angela was going to be playing Tina, I thought, well, I have to do this now because I was a fan of hers. I had worked with her before. You know, we had done Boys in the Hood together. We had almost made another movie together in 1988 with Cicely Tyson, the late Cicely Tyson and the late Natasha Richardson. And that movie, unfortunately, never got made. I was a huge fan of Angela's because I had seen her in Joe Turner's Come and Gone, the August Wilson play. And uh, I needed to be there to work with her and to provide the kind of support that I knew she would need. Knowing that there were some things you didn't like about how they, they wrote the character, how did you make it your own? I would change the script every day. Every day? <laughs> okay. Every day. I'm sure you did a lot of ad-libs, but what's maybe a scene or something that we might recognize that you probably changed a lot, but like what, what's something we might recognize that you, like, you went to work on? Most Black folks who enjoy the movie always quote, eat the cake anime. The two things that I did that I think that were most effective were, I made this decision that whenever Ike was being physically abusive with Tina, that you actually never see it. Like you never actually see Ike make physical contact with her when he strikes her, when he punches her, when he came, any of that stuff. There's always something obscuring it. And the reason for that was so that it would be the viewer's imagination that was really involved in creating whatever that moment is so that the viewer would have to participate in it. There's that scene that's, you know, I guess the rape scene. The director wanted to bring the camera in the booth with us, which was a very, very tight, enclosed space. And I was like, the camera has to be outside of this booth. You can only shoot us from the waist up. You can't shoot us from the waist down. And I'm only do- we're only doing this four times. Wow. When you're setting these boundaries, what are you trying to accomplish by setting those boundaries? Well, it's threefold. One is to make sure that the tone of the thing plays well, so that it plays honestly and truthfully, and that it's not gratuitous, and to protect both myself and my scene partner, Angela, from overdoing it. There's a danger in any kind of physical activity, whether you're an athlete or an actor. If you're a baseball player and you stand at the plate, you don't swing for the fences every time they pitch you the ball. And so with a scene like the rape scene, this is not something that you want to engage in emotionally. You don't want to go take that emotional journey all day, right? You want to sort of do the thing, perform, but you don't want to be swimming in that kind of emotional turmoil all day because you have other things to do. So along those same lines, I mean, because of the person you're playing and because the story is based off 
Tina's biography, you know, you're in the middle of that too. So how do you emotionally handle the fact that you are playing somebody who is an abuser? How do you emotionally deal with that? Having had some experience with that as a young man, I did a lot of counseling. You know, I found a great African-American therapist who helped me deal with my anger issues because I had been physical with my first wife. I got married when I was 23 years old. My first wife was 21. And our relationship was very volatile. And I was physically abusive with my first wife, to my regret and to my shame. And because of that, I had to go and look for some help. I had to find a therapist. And I worked with this man for four or five years on all of those issues. So I was very familiar with the territory and the emotional landscape of what brings a person to that place where they feel the need to be abusive to their partner. That's another reason why, you know, I said to the director, like, we can only do this a limited amount of time. This is not emotional territory that I want to be swimming in all day. I don't want Angela swimming in it all day. I don't want people on set having to deal with that kind of, you know, volatile, emotional kind of stuff all day where we're trying to make a film. For you, did you ever figure out what was the source of your anger? What was bringing that out of you? I didn't really specifically work on the source of my anger. It was really about how to recognize it when it was coming up, what my triggers were, and what were the behaviors that I could use that would counter it, that would help me to move in a different direction, as opposed to thinking that being violent or angry or overbearing or intimidating or any of that, we're going to actually resolve whatever the issue is. Now, with you saying that, you being the executive producer of Cave of Adultum makes so much sense now, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it makes so much sense. Well, just in the sense of like, because, you know, and by the way, I'm referring to the documentary for those listening. Uh, it's an ESPN documentary. I've watched it. I'm from Detroit. And so it's close to home for you. Very close to home. This really connects with me, even though I, I, the story is centered on a fellow Detroiter, Jason Wilson, who has this transformational training academy. Sole focus is to mentor young black boys and teach them how to deal with their anger issues and also just redefining masculinity in many ways from the toxic boy that they have learned it. You know, knowing the road that you've traveled, was that a factor in why you decided to become involved with this really wonderful project? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's really about initiation. You know, what we don't have enough of in this country is initiation ceremonies for young people that bring them out of childhood and into adulthood. There are some examples of, for example, Jewish people in this country, bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, they're girls and boys. And there's a whole ceremony that's religious, and secular, they're sort of braided together when a child is 13 or 14, and they are essentially given a ceremony that celebrates the end of childhood and the beginning of adulthood, and gives the child some tools, some rules, some guidance about what the differences are, gives the child an understanding that with adulthood comes not only rights and, and, and privileges, but responsibilities. In our culture, I think one of the best examples of it that exists is the fraternities and the sororities in the historic black colleges and universities. Those big brothers and sisters who initiate, you know, the people who are pledging to the frat, there's a period of, you know, trial and error. You have to, it's a test period. And there are certain things that you have to do. And out of those organizations have come some of the most productive, some of the most, you know, upright and really just good people in the community who have a sense of responsibility to our community, to each other, to making things better, not just for the black community in the country, but the entire country. I mean, it's like there's a real ceremony and ritual around it. And it just produces good people. It produces good human beings. It produces mature, responsible adults. And so I was lucky enough to get initiated into a community of artists when I was 14, 
when I made Apocalypse Now, I was essentially taken out of the environment in Brooklyn that I grew up in and taken off to the Philippines. And I was now plopped down in the middle of a group of men, older men who were artists and creatives. And I was taken under the wing of several of those men and mentored by them. And so I have a great deal of maturity in terms of my artistic life. I didn't get initiated in terms of personal life. And so I had to go back when I was 30 years old and do some extra work to sort of catch up and sort of balance out sort of my personal life and my professional life. What's so striking about this documentary is, you know, looking at all of the boys that are featured, I mean, very easily our boys I grew up with and, you know, even boys I may run into here and now, but it's almost heartbreaking to think about being that young, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and having already so much trauma having already happened to you, you know, and I know this program is about bringing them out of it, but what these young boys have to work through to get a handle on their confidence and being able to feel self-assured and safe. It just, it's, it's uplifting to see someone cares enough to do it, but it's heartbreaking at the same time that they have to go through it, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, the reality is, Jamel, that life is hard and life is what you make it. The trauma that you describe, you know, this, the movie follows the path of four different young men and they all have their own specific challenges. And yes, they're difficult. Life is difficult for everyone. No one gets out of here without experiencing some kind of sorrow and some kind of pain. And really, sorrow and pain and challenges and all of those things, on the other side of those things, if we learn our lessons from those things, then we, get, we can get to peace and we can get to serenity and we can get to joy and we can get to gratitude through the passage through sorrow and hardship. And ultimately, initiation ceremonies, that's what they're really about. It's about trauma. So for boys, what's so important about the Cave of Adullam is that Jason is really keyed in on something that needs to happen for young men. What happens for young men is we need to be scarred mentally. We need to have some kind of mental break that puts us on notice, like, oh, wow, wait, this is the... I can't be a kid and survive this. I can't use the skills that I used as a child to navigate life, to survive and to thrive in life as an adult. For females, there is a physiological change that happens with the beginning of the menstrual cycle. Women bleed, and there's physical evidence that this is different than when I was a little girl. And I got to put my big girl pants on now. I can't. Boys need the psychological scarring. That's the difference. But everybody needs to be initiated. So this documentary has been so well received. What does that mean to you? The fact that it's been very critically acclaimed. The reception. I'm overjoyed. I'm. I'm so. I'm. I've been talking about this whole thing, this whole initiation ideas for thirty years. I've been talking about um, because I realized it was something that was lacking in my own life, and I, on one, on one side of my life. But it was also something that I was given on another side of my life. And I just, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, we actually got it out there and, you know, ESPN is broadcasting it. Um, I feel like everybody that sees it in, in some way, shape or form gets initiated. It definitely um, shifts something inside of you. I like material that shape shifts, right? It, it, it definitely does. Right. Well, what do you, I know that there's so many different, you, the initiation part, as you pointed out, is, is pretty central in it. But what do you ultimately hope really resonates with the young black boys and black men who see this in general? Well, I, I think Jason Wilson describes it really, really beautifully in the opening moments of the film where you hear him in voiceover say, when I started the program, I thought that black boys needed more discipline. And that I realized after doing it that they didn't need more discipline. What they needed was more love. And teaching someone discipline, helping someone to master themselves, to master their emotions, to train their thoughts, to train their body. All of those things working together in concert create a kind of harmony within the being, within the human being. And creating that kind of harmony within human beings creates human, better human beings, better communities, better families, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, one of the parts, one of my favorite parts is when he was going into his own backstory and he talked about 
when he was taking care of his sick and ailing mother. Mm-hmm. Right. And he said that he thought by being the super strong masculine man that that was going to help her more. And he realized that he needed to be tender. He needed to literally have the opposite traits in order to be the person there for her. And I, I just thought that was a word right there. He needed to tap into his feminine side in order to care for his mother. She was dying. Yes, exactly. Again, I, I can't encourage people enough to see this because I, I do think I feel for black men, young and old and in between, because just not always encouraged to explore these emotional depths within themselves or to be emotional. I love the fact that these young black boys are crying in this and soothe at the same time. It's just, it's really, really wonderful. So I, I mean, I cannot thank you enough for putting this out there because it's, it's an extraordinary piece. Thank you. Thank you. So we are going to take a quick break and I have a, a million more questions. This is what happens when somebody's IMDB is about four computers worth of things. <laughs> we'll be back with more with Lawrence Fishburne. So I'm about to put y'all in the trust tree. Y'all going to be in the nest for real. This is something that probably qualifies for too much information, but I got a story to tell about how the word Alaska became a special code word between me and my husband. Pre-pandemic, I accompanied the husband on a work trip to Alaska. I'd never been there before, and since it was unlikely that I would ever have a reason to go to Anchorage, Alaska, I thought this was the perfect opportunity for me to check another state off the list. We went in January, so it was cold. Shit, let me keep it real. It was cold, cold, cold. Actually, it was four colds. Cold, 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 cold. But I was down for the adventure. I mean, we went dog sledding, got our sightsee on, went to a bar, went to the museum. One morning, though, we went to a breakfast spot that was suggested to us by one of the hotel workers. The spot was incredible, and our plan was to do some exploring after we had breakfast. But as we're leaving, I tell my husband, nah, let's let's pivot for a moment and go back to the hotel. And he was like, why? And I told him, I have to use the bathroom. And he said, well, why can't you use it here? And I gave him a look, a look that I hope pierced his soul. And so I think after getting that look, he understood the situation. Now, the restaurant was maybe five minutes from the hotel, but those five minutes felt like 55 minutes. Now, before I tell you this next part, let me explain that my husband plays too much. He got a great sense of humor. It's one of the many reasons I love him. But unfortunately, he chose the wrong time for this sense of humor of his to emerge. We pulled into the hotel parking lot and I'm thinking he gonna let me out at the front door. Nah, son. He instead pulls into a parking spot, but he doesn't pull in headfirst. He decides to back in. And the whole time he's smiling at me while I'm squirming in my seat. I say to him, what the hell are you doing? And he said, I'm parking. And I said, or rather I yelled, I told you I had to use the bathroom. And then he looks at me and says with a mischievous smile, oh, my bad. I didn't know it was like that. He stopped the car and I just hopped out. He hadn't even fully finished parking yet. Now, at this point, when it feels like the Omegas are doing a step show inside my stomach, I got two choices. Chance it and try to make it up to our room, which is on the top floor, or use the public restroom on the first floor. I chose the latter option because I wasn't confident I was going to make it all the way upstairs. And thank God I did, because had I not made that very critical decision, this story would have had a much different ending. So after I use the restroom and sure, y'all can judge me for using a public restroom in this manner, but I don't care. Anyway, I go up to the room and my husband is sitting on the bed and he has the nerve to ask me, where'd you go? When I tell you I wanted to choke him fully out. And when I told him what happened, of course, he couldn't stop laughing. He swears again that he didn't know it was that bad. And he apologized for playing around. And ever since then, when it's a critical bathroom situation, The code word is now Alaska. And now back to more with Lawrence Fishburne. So 
Despite how prolific your career has been, you have been nominated for one Oscar. How does that make you feel? It was wonderful to be nominated. It really was. Well, but so you don't feel like you should have been nominated for more. <laughs> no. No. Okay. And even if I did, Jamel, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. Well, that may be true. I have so many wonderful accolades. Do you know there's an organization called the Friends of Black Oscar and the Friends of Black Emmy? I do not know that. It was created by a family out of Chicago that was associated with Johnson & Johnson Productions, the, you know, the publishers of Ebony Magazine, Black Enterprise, and so on and so forth. And for years and years and years, they had an evening. It would always happen either the night before the Emmy Awards or the night before the Oscars. And they would honor those of us whose work they found to be, you know, positive representations of black people in, in media. I think I have maybe eight or nine of those awards. I think Denzel is probably the only person who has more than me. He's got like you know, 16. I probably left like half of the amount that he has. All of my life, because of my mother's guidance and my mother's direction, my mother gave me that directive that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is in order to compete in this world, in this society in which we find ourselves, you have to be three times as good to be able to just like compete. That's kind of the directive I've, I've followed most of my life, certainly professionally. And it means that I have to think about things that my contemporaries and my colleagues who are not black don't have to think about, but I'm happy to do it. It means that I have to think about things like how am I representing my ancestors and my community and the community that I am identified with and that I represent? Am I doing that well? I think I have because what I hear from people when I meet them, people like yourself, black people all over the world are like, I love you. Thank you for doing what you do the way you do it. Because it's really not about what you do, but the way that you do it. I mean, Ike was not a nice man. That, that's a mild way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the character I played in King of New York is not a role model. Jimmy Jump, right? Yeah. However, there is a kind of authenticity with which I portrayed those people that people recognize so that they're like, yeah, I know who that brother is. I'm glad you highlighted the, the character you played in Kings of New York because that was not originally supposed to be written for a black man, correct? No, that was written for a white guy. Yeah. And not only did you, obviously, it, it had to be tailored to you, but you brought that entire persona to that movie. Yes, I did. I did. What made you think that? It's this, you know, it's this gangster fantasy. It's really kind of a gangster fantasy movie that's based on couple of guys that were in New York in the early 70s, Joe Gallo and his brother. Anyway, they were the first guys in the organized crime world that recruited black and brown people to work for them and be a part of their crew. But that was in the 70s. Peter Boyle made a movie back in the 1970s. I think it was called Crazy Joe. Anyway, jumped to 1998, 99. So Abel Farrar, this New York filmmaker, creates this sort of fantasy about that story. Christopher Walken. And the character was written for a guy named James Russo, who was unavailable. I was living in Brooklyn. I was living in Bed-Stuy. And there was a cat I used to see when I would come up out of the train on Utica Avenue, young rapper. And rap was only 10 years old. And his thing was, he called himself the hip-hop gangster. And I thought, wow, I haven't seen the hip-hop gangster on, on film yet. Like, I could see him out here on the street doing his thing, but I haven't seen him in the movies yet. He needs to be in the movies. And so I just saw an opportunity to bring that kind of sensibility to film at that moment in time. And that's the genesis. That's why I played him the way I played him. Is that the kind of mentality that you tried to approach all of the characters you played? That Did you need to draw upon someone or think of somebody? Like, I haven't seen this. All characters are individuals. I try to really kind of approach them as individuals. I have no formula. I, I'm not a trained actor. I'm not traditionally trained. I didn't go to school for acting. Um, I started on the job early. I have a gift for it. I have a natural sort of 
understanding and sort of feel for what the dramatic art is. And I have a, I have a nice voice that actually works with that too. So I, I just tend to work from instinct and intuition mostly. I'm also very curious. So I go and I, I try and find out about stuff that pertains to either the story or the character or the person or, or even, you know, sort of the director. There's a director that I haven't worked with and it's always fun to kind of go back and look at their work and figure out what kind of stories are they really good at telling? Why did they choose this story as opposed to that story? What are they going to bring to this story that we're telling together? You know, that kind of stuff. Well, and apparently you have a very good sixth sense when it comes to directors, because I still find it amazing that despite the fact that John Singleton had never, <laughs> never directed anything. And here you are, you know, early 30s, you're already accomplished. You've already been in major movies and you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to ride with this young kid and, and see where we go. <laughs> Listen, this script was flawless. The script for Boys in the Hood was Lawless. And he wrote it twice. Right? He entered it into that fellowship that Scott Wooded, where it is that that writing competition at SC where he went to school. He entered that script in that competition twice. So he had done his homework. And then the other thing that was really amazing, I just recently found this, I found this out after John had passed, was that he grew up across the street from a drive-in movie theater. I hope this is true. But that tells me one of the things about John was so amazing and explained it was, you know, John always talked in pictures. He'd be like, let me tell you about this thing I'm working on. And he'd start just telling you about the pictures. John's first language was the moving image, like images. He talked in images. He thought in pictures. So it just felt right to me. I imagine, I mean, I, I know the budget for Boys in the Hood was not very big. No. No, right? And I know he wanted you to play Furious Styles. Mm -hmm. When you read the character of Furious, what for you was it that really struck you as, in terms of figuring out who this man is? That wasn't really my first concern. The thing that was great about it was when I finished reading it, I was in tears. When I turned the last page, I was crying when I read Boys in So that tells you everything about the story. Because it wasn't about the character for me, it was about the story, it was about those three young men. My only concern, the only sort of thing that stuck out for me about Furious was there's that whole scene where he goes, he takes Ricky and Trey to the vacant lot, and he explains gentrification and all of that. And that was my, my only concern was about making sure that the tone of that was correct, because I didn't want to hit people over the head. In your mind, you wondered if it was too messagey. Right, I'm assuming. Right, it, it, it's there's clearly there's a, there's messaging in it, and that's great. I just wanted to make sure that the message was received, and so it wasn't born out of anger, but it was born out of facts, clear-eyed facts. It's just I'm going to give you the facts here. I'm just going to tell you how this works. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about it though. <laughs> right, but here's let me lay out the case. But let me lay out what this is. It feels like every actor, inevitably, you hit a downturn in your career. What would you say was the most humbling point in your career? I would say after having done Apocalypse Now when I was, you know, 15, 16, uh, having the movie come out when I was 18, and the anticipation was, you know, this is the most expensive movie ever made. You know, it's got one of the greatest living actors who's, you know, Marlon Brando's in the movie, the guy that directed The Godfather directed the movie, and blah, blah, blah. It's going to just be great. And it was a commercial flop. It was a critical success. It has gone on to become a masterpiece of American cinema, but it was a commercial flop when it came out. And I couldn't get a job for 15 months after it came out. And that was very humbling for me. So what did you do during that time when you couldn't get a job? Uh, I spent a lot of time hanging out with interesting people. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't beg a follow-up. <laughs> like, interesting people. Nope. I hung around with a lot of interesting and, and shall we say, unsavory characters. <laughs> okay. 
you, you know, you can look at it as research if you want. I was like, I've spent a lot. Absolutely. Of- right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It was all grist for the mill. It was all very much, you know, part of like, listen, it was the time of ashes. Young men, young women, as we leave childhood and we go into young adulthood, there is that whole apprenticeship stage. You know, when you find something that you want to do, you have to find in the old world I'm talking about now. I'm talking about in the very old world, not just last century, but centuries before last century, where you, you find a, a teacher, a master, a mentor, and you go and you go to work for them and you work for nothing, and you work for free, and you do the shit work and you get dirty. So that's essentially what that period of time in my life was. It was the time of ashes for me where, you know, I didn't know whether I was going to become the person that I've become, where I had doubt and where I had adversity and I had to deal with, you know, the realities of the racism that exists in our country, not just our business, but in our country as a young black man who was artistic, who was different, you know, and I, you know, I survived it, but I was here in LA for, you know, three, four years trying to like be an actor. And I was already an actor. I was already an established actor, but nobody in the established business either gave a shit or knew what to do with me because they found me to be too different, too eccentric, too intimidating, too whatever. In the back of the day, we would have said too black, too strong. You know what I'm saying? But it was a combination of things. And some of it was on me because I have to admit, I had big chip on my shoulder. I was like, don't y'all understand who I'm is? What's wrong with y'all? Like, I just made the most expensive movie in the world. Don't you know what this is? They're like, yeah, maybe you're a little more than we need right now. (laughs) Well, during that period, did you ever think maybe this isn't the profession for me? Well, it's the only time where I had doubts about it. It was the only time I had doubts that I was going to actually succeed. Not that it was not for me, but just that it just wasn't going to happen for me. You know, once you finally did sort of get back in the swing of things, whatever you learned during that gap of time where you didn't work, how did you find a way to, I guess, incorporate this into what you, you know, as your career then began to pick up? Yes, yes. It was really about the life stuff and it was really about humility. It was really the thing that I was lacking was humility. I lacked humility. I had a lot of talent. I had a lot of intelligence. I had an attitude. You know, I was angry. I was resentful of a lot of things. But none of those things really mattered after a while. I was wreck. I came to realize, like, all that stuff that you're angry about, that you're resentful about, that's not helping you. You walk into a room full of anger and resentment, people can feel it, and they just don't want to be bothered. It's not personal. (laughs) (laughs) They just don't want to be bothered by that. They don't want to have to deal with that. Why are you bringing that to work? You know, work should be fun. You should be able to enjoy it. You have a... You know, acted in in every possible <laughs> genre, and you know, you've done it for the stage. You did it for TV, film. I've played a cowboy, but I've never been in a western. That's right, cowboy Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, you know that's literally the most unique thing in your entire profile: the fact that you used, used to be on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Because I, I know, I if you want to stump anybody with a trivia question, it's that one. <laughs> like this. Is, because of all the actors, no one would guess that Lawrence Fishburne used to be on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Cowboy Curtis, absolutely. Cowboy Curtis. Uh, what What I was going to ask you though is that doing all these different things, and now it, it feels like you're jumping into something also different because you're doing uh, something with Kerry Washington, correct? A scripted podcast. Well, we did this podcast. Yeah, we did this thing called Prophecy, which is really fun and really cool. Yeah. It's uh, a, a reimagining of uh, popular tales from the Bible, like Jonah and the whale and Virgin Mary and Doubting Thomas and Daniel and the lion's den, all sort of braided together in a podcast that I think is doing really well. What was that like? Because that's totally, you know, that's very different than what you normally do. It's very different from, say, doing an animated film. Like, what was it like doing it for this? It was fantastic. I mean, uh, Carrie Washington and I worked on a film called... 
the school for good and evil that just premiered on netflix and she's the producer she's one of the producers and she asked if i would read it if i would consider playing this part of agent thomas and i i did i read the episodes and i was captivated from episode one i was just in it it was it's so smart and it's so suspenseful carrie plays this woman mary you know basically is this black woman who's claiming to be the mother of the christ <laughs> it's, like, it's like whoa yeah let's go there's another guy who claims to be you know da- daniel from the lions then like works at the london zoo got got trapped in the pen with all the lions and survived it's just it's just really really smart and a wonderful way to sort of revisit the stories from the bible that we know in a contemporary kind of context it's really nice how did you feel about blackish coming to an end if you don't mind i'd like to start at the beginning go right ahead i was so surprised by the support that we got when we first premiered because you know some people were like i don't know about the title blackish i don't know about that title which you know is understandable but the fact that they put us on abc put us right behind modern family which was kind of their number one family show so my thought was oh wow we're either gonna do really well they have a lot of confidence in us or we ain't got a snowball's chance at hell and it turned out to be that we were received incredibly well so just the fact that we were received incredibly well um, that it was during that time when President Obama and Michelle were in the White House. And so the American first family happened to be a black family at the same time. And all of the things that ensued after that, whether you're talking about, you know, the BLM movement or whether you're talking about the Me Too thing, or I mean, it's just like so many, there have been so many cultural shifts, you know, small growth spurts we've had. We've had these really interesting growth spurts since Obama's presidency, shall we say. And we've had reactions to those growth spurts. We've had serious resistance to that. And that's okay. Because, you know, growth is hard. Growth is painful. By the end, I felt very proud of the fact that we had produced seven seasons of really good content. We had talked about things that no one else in network television was talking about, that we had successfully put two other shows on the air with Mixedish and Grownish, that we have left a body of work that I think will be relevant for people for certainly a number of decades in the way that a lot of great television is. Yeah, I asked you that because I had Kenya Barris on the podcast and he said he thought that Blackish could have gone on two more seasons. Sure, it could have gone on two more seasons, yeah. But when you consider that it was, wasn't just blackish, that there's blackish, there's grownish, there's mixedish. And for a moment, they were talking about oldish, right? And for a moment, they were talking about oldish, exactly. So when you consider that there's three shows that we put out, four seasons, I think, maybe five seasons of grownish and eight seasons of blackish, it's 13 seasons of television. You know, do the math, right? Yeah, I mean, that's hard to do. It's hard to get a show that is a water cooler show, especially, and then for it to last that long. Exactly. And we changed the culture. I mean, you know, we put Juneteenth. Juneteenth is now part of the American consciousness across the country. Not just black folks know about Juneteenth. Everybody knows because the day after our Juneteenth episode aired, Apple put it on their calendar. And uh, you had our former president uh, quite in a tizzy about <laughs> <laughs> the show. Did we? <laughs> which is one of Yes, which is one of the funniest moments ever when he questioned the title of Black. <laughs> oh, did he? That did actually happen. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> it's on brand for that guy, that's for sure. It's very much on brand. There you go. Uh bef- before we get into what I always consider to be the most controversial part of the interview, uh I want to ask you this final question here. With all the things that you've done, and I don't mean in terms of like your favorite project or your favorite movie or character. But when you think about your career stretching across multiple decades, what are you most proud of in terms of how you've navigated your career? I'm very, very proud of being an actor. All my life, when I started working, even when I was like 
11 years old, you know, people in my neighborhood, you know, the kids would be like, hey, movie star, hey, movie star. And I've always thought of myself as an actor first. And I recognize that, yes, I'm a movie star too. I've done that too. And I love that. That's, you know, that's fun too. That's nice. It's great to be in the movies. The people that I admired and I respected who were my examples all started in the theater. So I'm looking at some of them now. I have photographs of them in my office. So I'm looking at a photograph of myself and Harry Belafonte and the late Sidney Poitier and the late Cicely Tyson. And these are people who were my heroes. And these are people whose example I wanted to follow. And they all started in the theater. And yeah, they were movie stars too. And they carried themselves with dignity and with grace and they led with their intelligence. And they tried to make a difference in the world with their work and with their humanity and with their personhood, you know? So that's the thing I'm proud of. If I've lived up to half of their example, I must be doing okay. Well, now the fun and the controversy begin. Oh, is there fun and controversy involved? There's fun and controversy involved. So before... Do I need my funny glasses or am I okay? <laughs> before I get you out of here, Lawrence, uh, it's a game I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. Okay. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices and you must, you must pick one. Must pick one or the other? One or the other. Okay, you know, I'm a contrarian now, so I might. I do, which is why this is going to be really fun. Okay. (laughs) All right. The better mentor, Morpheus or Furious? Morpheus, because he moves between both the real world and the fantasy world. He understands both. You found the loophole. I like that. (laughs) That's a good one. Greater influence on your career, James Earl Jones or Sidney Poitier? Can't choose one. Listen, I, what did I tell you? No, no, <laughs> sorry, because you left out you left out two guys. <laughs> but I had to narrow it to no, two. You left out Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole. You can't. It's four point. Look, there are four directions on the compass, Jamel. You did say you were a contrarian. Look at you blowing up the question. I was like, I tried to limit it to two. I told you. So you're abstaining <laughs> from that one. Okay. All right. You know what? Here's the final one. Joe Turner has come and gone or fences. I know you're a big August Wilson guy. For me, Joe Turner has Joe Turner's come and gone is the masterwork. You went out for fences, correct? On Broadway? No, no. I played fences with Angela Bassett here in California at the Pasadena Playhouse in 2006. Right after um, August died. Ah, okay. I know for a, a, a long time, it took you a minute uh, before you did finally <laughs> appear in one of his plays. Yeah, I auditioned for Lloyd Richards five times before I got a job. And then I finally figured out what they were really looking for when I auditioned for Two Trains Running here in Los Angeles in 1990. Well, Lawrence, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Again, everybody, please go see Cave of Adulum. It is phenomenal. Lawrence Executive produces it. It's a really great story, uplifting and promising, and it has everything you would want to just sort of view in this kind of documentary. And we're getting John Wick 4, right? John Wick 4 coming in 2023. Look at that. And something else called Slingshot with Casey Affleck coming sometime probably in 2023. And most importantly, on Disney, I am executive producer, my partner and I, Helen Sutherland, our company. My company is called Cinema Gypsy. We have produced an animated series called Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. And it's about a 13-year-old African-American girl named Lunella Lafayette, who lives on the Lower East Side of New York City. She is the smartest person in the Marvel Universe. She's smarter than Tony Stark. She's smarter than Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four. And her sidekick who is a 50-foot Tyrannosaurus Rex, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, coming in February 
2023. We will look for all of those projects. Man, you stay working. That's all I got to say. You stay working. Somebody got to pay for all this business. You ain't lying. I heard that. Got to cut them checks. Yes. Lawrence, thank you for spending the time with me. Bless you so much, Jamel. All right, y'all. Lawrence is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Many of the things I say and ran about on this podcast are recurring. That's why I fucking I'm bothered about this horrible story that happened in Cabo. 25-year-old Shanquella Robinson died while on vacation in Mexico. She went on a group trip with friends. And when I say friends, just picture me saying that in air quotes. Because based off what has surfaced so far, it appears these so-called friends directly contributed to her murder. The so-called friends told Shanquilla's parents, Bernard and Salamandra Robinson, that their daughter died of alcohol poisoning. But since the reporting of her death, a video has gone viral of a woman violently fighting Shanquilla on this vacation. The video was posted by a North Carolina blogger, and reportedly, this video had been sent by someone who was in the room. That same video also was sent to an individual family member that this person is friends with. Now, if you're wondering how any of these people who are with Shanquella were allowed to leave, it's because the Mexican authorities told the State Department that there was no clear evidence of foul play, even though the official death certificate says that Shanquilla died from a, quote, severe spinal cord injury and atlas luxation, which is a loosening or detachment of the first vertebrae from the base of the skull. Nothing was said about alcohol poisoning. Now, the group she came with was allowed to return back to the States and Shanquilla's parents had to pay $6,000 to get her body sent back to the States. Nobody has been arrested, but now the FBI is looking into Shanquilla's death. This is beyond a tragedy. It's a full on injustice. And as I've said time and again in this space, the lives of black women are an afterthought, a complete non-motherfucking factor. Now, that applies to black people overall. But if an American white woman turned up dead under mysterious circumstances in Mexico, it wouldn't have taken a viral video. Activists such as Tamika Mallory putting pressure on the United States in order for it to become a national story. And to be honest, I still can't quite call it a national story. It's just a social media story. And from what I've mostly seen, the only people really tweeting about it, posting calls for justice on Instagram and Facebook are black people. This is why I reject the idea that black people only care about the harm done to other black people if the police are involved. But the truth is, a lot of times when we express that same level of outrage and concern over the deaths of black people in non-police related matters, the media does not care. Shanquella Robinson isn't going to get the Natalie Holloway treatment. She's not going to get the Gabby Petito treatment. I promise you that this will not get the wall to wall media coverage it deserves. And years from now, she will not be the subject of a television movie. Black folks learn how little we are worth all the time, which is why we have to stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, 
William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.